It's great to see you this Lord's Day, and as folks come back in, let me make a few comments here. Uh, I believe these are still out front on one of the side shelves, but as I've come back from sabbatical, I was just looking up from my desk this past week, and I saw this document that just reminds me and reminds us of the mission we believe God's given to this local church. And even just hearing Chuck share just now, we're part of these local works of the Holy Spirit of God where he's called us and placed us in a sphere of influence he's assigned, and we ought to be about the mission he's called us to. And so just want to encourage you to grab one of these and pray for our church, that we'd be a church that proclaims Christ and seeks to present everyone mature in him, seeking the reformation and restoration of the church community in the world. That's our mission. And as we look at the text we're about to study, even as I just kind of joked with the children, talk about a text that will challenge our maturity in Christ. What Jesus is going to say here this morning about the heart and our need for his rescue is tremendously important. Allow me to say one other thing. So grab one of these if you don't have it, put it on your fridge. The other thing I'd like to say in hearing the mission's testimony again this morning when we were away this summer for our break, as I checked into things via email or talked to my children who were coming here, they're usually in the second service, but um, I was visibly able to see that the Lord in his kindness has given us a missions culture over the last seven years that, that wasn't here seven years ago when I came. I mean, there were reasons that we weren't able to do what we are able to do now by God's kindness, but just to see testimonies from missionaries. So even in this last month since I've been back, we've had two different missions partners share. And we ought to be letting that be a model for our life locally where God's called us. So grab time with this family, learn from them, and pray that we would continue to be a church that prioritizes global, domestic, but certainly local mission in our very streets, neighborhoods, sidelines, classrooms, wherever you may be. So we turn to Matthew chapter 12, and this is like part two, if you were with us last Lord's Day, because Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees. He's going to keep talking to the same group of individuals in the same scene. And so out of the gate, we're going to see that he wants in this last bit of his words to preach the gospel about the heart to the hearts of those he's talking to. That's what Jesus does. He's going to talk about the heart to the heart of those he is engaged with, and we need to listen. Let me ask you a series of questions to help us before we read. Think about your own life and your own words. Why do you say what you say when you say it? Why do I say what I say the way I said it when I say it? If you have something that sneaks out of your mouth, you ever surprised yourself? Like, oh, why did it sneak out? Maybe you have an explosion of emotion. It could be the kind that wounds someone deeply or finally expresses your wounds. Why is that what came out? Or maybe you don't explode with emotion. Maybe you simmer and you simmer and you simmer and then you finally speak. Why is that what you do? Or if you speak with harsh words, often, why? Or if you are one who speaks with very colorful language, why? If you are one who does not speak what you are thinking very often, in fact, you often try not to say things and you will 
Sometimes never express what you say, but you'll say something else. You'll try to be comical. you do whatever is required to divert attention from what you have to say. Why? If you post something on social media, whatever it is, why? Why did you post what you posted, when you posted, for those whom you have asked to follow your posts? I could keep going. If you are a person who's prone to complain about adversity, why? If you are a real positive encourager, but it also makes you always want to make sure everyone around you is okay, why? Okay, I could just keep going. You need to know the answer to those questions. I need to know the answer to that question. I think we should if we are in Christ, know the answer to that question. And the answer is this, because that's where your heart is every time your mouth speaks. That's why. That's why you said what you said, because that's where your heart is. And that's where Jesus takes us in this text. So I want to just implore you. He's speaking to those who are angry with him and are aggravated at him. And I hope that you didn't come into this place angry with him and aggravated with him. But he knows our hearts. And so let's listen to what he says to the Pharisees and ask for the Lord's help as we have the, the Spirit apply it to our lives. So would you stand together with me? And I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of God. Yes. Father, our hearts need to attend to this, and we ask that you'd minimize distractions and you would use my words and use the words of Jesus to work in our hearts. So we ask for your mercy and your help. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Our brain has an amazing ability to make connections. Maybe this has happened to you. You see something or you hear something and as soon as you see it, like the neurons start firing everywhere and then you think of this thing and then that thing and then that thing that other person said about something and the next thing that comes out of your mouth, the listener to you is like on a scavenger hunt for, for trying to figure out what, where are we? Like what, 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 what do you just do? And if you've ever hung out, it's me who does this, I know, I know. But as I was studying this week, this is something I thought of. Jesus, it seems, he kind of jumps around in what he's saying, and yet we know it's not random. He's talking to the Pharisees, and so a question we should have as we proceed this morning is, what's the connection between what he says and what he says next? And why does the connection matter? So that's what we're going to try to do. So if you recall with me back to verse 22, this is one scene. He heals a blind, mute, demon-oppressed man, and when he does so, the crowd's there amazed. 
right? This bruised reed, the bruised reeds of the bruised reeds is restored and made whole and not discarded. And the crowds are amazed and they say, is this the son of David? Right? They, they ground their interpretation of the event and what they know from Scripture. And then there's another group of interpreters, the Pharisees. They say, nah, this fellow, he's under the influence of Beelzebul. He's actually doing the works of Satan. And Jesus very easily refutes their absurd logic. And that's what we enjoyed looking at last week. Jesus says, no, Satan is not in a civil war with himself. His kingdom's not divided. Satan is evil, but he is not an idiot. I'm not under the influence of Beelzebul. What's happening is that the spirit of God is upon me and the kingdom of God has now come upon you. And now there's a collision between my kingdom and the kingdom of the ruler of this world. And then he gives the image of binding the strong man. He says, I'm the one that's bound the strong man. Satan's the strong ruler in this place, but I'm going to loose those he thinks that are his. That's what's happening. And then in verse 30, he says, so you're either with me or you're against me. You're either a part of my kingdom or you're part of the kingdom of my enemy. Now we see verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what's the connection here? Well, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is something that comes out of the mouth, and it is the speaking against God that the the whole scene is about, right? D.A. Carson says blasphemy is extreme slander of God. And Jesus says every sin can be forgiven by God, even blasphemy against God. Myself, look at that in verse 32. Even blasphemy against the Son of Man, that can be forgiven. Every blasphemy except one can be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What is Jesus doing? Why this connection? Well, it's simple. The Pharisees have been speaking against him. To to use Isaiah 5.20, they have called what is good evil and what is evil good. And so Jesus is directing his words to them. They are in a very dangerous spiritual place for they have blasphemed the Son. Yet by God's mercy, even blasphemy against the Son can still be repented of and can still be then forgiven. But these Pharisees had better be careful, right? As I was reading different commentators, really that's kind of the tone is, y'all better be careful. You are perilously close to a line that you can never cross. You better be careful. Gives me pause to think about our culture. We live in a place where people had better be careful. It's just common parlance to violate the third commandment and say God's name in vain because of what we feel about how on time our food was at the restaurant or what happened in our watching a recent sporting event that we were passionate about. Restless demons have more reverence for God than do those who take the Lord's name in vain. And it's just swirls around us, doesn't it? But Jesus is still saying, hold on, every word carelessly spoken about me as the eternal son of man, it can still be forgiven by God for those who repent. So as Dan Doriani says, it doesn't matter then what a man once said about Jesus. If he repents, God will forgive. However, Jesus says there is one blasphemy that places one who is guilty outside the pale of God's east from west forgiveness. It's blasphemy against the Spirit. So what is this? Well, think about what Jesus knows. 
And we don't have time now, but you could just look in John 14 or John 16 when Jesus teaches his disciples about the Spirit. And he says very plainly, the Spirit is the one. He's equal with me. He's equal with the Father. We're all equal, but there's different roles to play. The Spirit's role is to convict sinners of their need of salvation, to then convince sinners that Jesus is the only Savior for their condition. And then when he converts sinners, he applies the work accomplished by Jesus as God's Son and holds them in that salvation. Convicts, convinces, converts, and enables their saved soul to continue, you could say. Which means, let me quote again from D.A. Carson. He was one of my professors, by the way. I quote him every once in a while because I've got a good commentary of his. Um, Anyway, I'm thinking of his voice. He says, there's a difference between rejecting the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, and a rejection with the full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing. Thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting. Carson says there's a difference. See, if the Holy Spirit is the one sent by God to reveal exactly who Jesus is as the only mediator between the only God and his creation, such that a person comes to know this is who Jesus says he is, and that person then still refuses to believe that Jesus is the one that the Spirit, through the Word, has made plain that he says that he is, could be any reason that person is not just now rejecting the Son in a state of ignorance, that person is is repudiating the declaration of the Holy Spirit to say this is who the Son is. I want to say this carefully because I I don't want to be a conservative, reformed, gospel-believing, word-grounded congregation and just throw stones at other congregations. But you'll hear me say this again maybe this morning later. I think this is why progressive liberal churches that know what the Word of God says and have twisted the interpretation of what it could mean and are no longer preaching the gospel are evil and wicked and are tools of Satan in a world that no longer knows what truth is. For if the Spirit is the one that makes the Word be applicable unto salvation, then an entity of people who says the Word is our foundation but denies it as they so teach is ruthlessly dangerous. And I appeal to you to reach out to your friends who are in churches that are actually denying the veracity of Scripture and the authority of of the gospel. Appeal to them to be in a different place so their ears hear different words, for their hearts are going to follow what they hear. Okay, so that's strong speak, but ultimately, that's what Jesus is saying is, for those that ought know, because the Spirit uses the word to convince hearts of who the Son of Man is, those are the ones who, if they then deny it fully and reject it, They're outside the pale of God's forgiveness. But Jesus says, hold on. There are people who do not believe who Jesus is out of ignorance. And it's a very tricky line. And here's what I mean by tricky. Think of what Jesus says on the cross to those crucifying him. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or how about Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3? He says to the Pharisees, You killed the author of life. You should have known who he was. You killed the one that God rose from the dead. And we're witness of this. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Isn't that interesting? They knew. They should have known. But Peter says you were still ignorant at at, at one level or another. 
you didn't understand what the Spirit was saying about the Son. Or how about the Apostle Paul himself? Pharisee of the Pharisees. He calls himself a blasphemer in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. This is a line that only the Spirit of God knows. Does a person know the Word, have had the Spirit influence their understanding of who the Son is, and they reject it at wholesale, or is that person still in a place of ignorance? R.C. Sproul says, in every person's life, there's a time when he or she does not understand who Jesus is. And if that person blasphemed Jesus in that time, it can be forgiven. But if the Spirit of God reveals the truth to that person, and he afterward tramples the Son of God underfoot and insults the Spirit, there is nothing to expect but judgment. Sproul is ultimately referencing Hebrews chapter 10, which I won't spend time in now. Trampling the Son underfoot refusing the spirit of grace, Jesus says, is what's unforgivable. Now, a question that we might ask and often ask is, can a Christian commit the unforgivable sin? I love R.C. Sproul's answer. He says, yes and no. He says this, if God did not keep us from doing so, we could and we would. But he, because he does, we do not. Thank you, cheeky theologian. But he's referencing Philippians 1.6, that God is going to finish the work he's begun and bring our salvation unto completion, isn't he? Okay, Jesus wants to make it plain. The, the warnings of the Pharisees, the unforgivable sin of rejecting the Spirit's testimony of who the Son is has forever consequences. So look at the terrifying end of verse 32. It's very sober. There is no forgiveness in this life or in the age to come. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe. But then let's see what happens here. Let's follow Jesus' logic. Verse 33. Suddenly he starts to talk about trees and fruit. And whether the fruit is good or is bad, he makes a change. Notice he also goes on the attack. He calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He sounds a lot like John the Baptist, right? This is what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So Jesus is going on the offensive here. Well, what's the connection to what he's saying? This is where it gets very down to the gritty for us. He says, well, of course you Pharisees would blaspheme me. How can you speak any good when your heart is evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, you want to know why the two groups of people responded so differently to the same miracle where Jesus healed this man? Because by God's Holy Spirit's help, one group of people said, I think this is the son of David. Their hearts had been softened to the word, and they were at one level at least wrestling with the truth. And then you see the Pharisees, their hearts are still hard. They've not been convinced by the Spirit yet of what the, the Scriptures would say. And so they can only speak that which is in their heart. And it's cold, and it's dead, and it's absurd, and it's baseless, and it's what we looked at last week. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the principle. Uh, to try to help with the principle, because I think we know this, but I put a short quote on the back of the bulletin. It's from Tolstoy in the novel Anna Karenina. Boredom is a desire for desires. Maybe this would have made a better children's sermon, but you ever had a child or heard a child just like, I'm bored. I'm so bored. That's what comes out of the mouth, but the reality is your heart just desires to desire something. 
Out of the mouth comes I'm bored. In the heart is a lack of desire. That's what is the principle underneath this. The heart is the core of our being and it overflows out of the mouth. Such that every time we open our mouth, we let someone else look into our heart. It's true of spoken words. It's true of written words, whether our words are in anger or our words are in love and in kindness. It's true of all of our words. And I've been thinking this week about how I'll use myself because I'm going to presume it might be true about you, but I know it's true for me. I get this backwards still. How often do I say to someone, what I said is not what I meant? I think that's backwards from what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying to us, no, what you said and the way you said it reveals what your heart meant. That's what he's teaching here. Now, does it happen sometimes where words come out and they don't sound the way we mean? Yeah, I think that does happen. But how is that going to evidence that our heart didn't mean it, but by the next words our heart uses are words of restoration or apology or trying to understand. But the next words reveal where our heart is really at. Let's carry on. This is heavy. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, the condition of your heart dictates everything. You're not sinners who speak so foolishly about me because you speak foolishly. It's because your heart is evil and you're sinful that you speak so foolishly about me. He's saying to you and I, we are not sinners because we speak sinfully. He's saying to you, you speak sinfully because of your heart that is marred by sin. And the Pharisees had to understand that their evil, absurd words came from somewhere. It came from hearts that were evil and set against the kingdom of God. According to the Bible, the heart is not basically good. I think you know this, but it's worth rehearsing, right? Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Jesus to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. This young man comes up to him and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. It's not you, but if you don't believe me, go try to keep all the commandments, all of them. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceptive and deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Or James chapter 4, verse 1, why do you quarrel? What causes fights, right? Your words, why do you do this? Is it not this? Your passions, your heart is at war within you. And the Bible is abundantly clear. A change of heart is what we need. A change of heart is at the heart of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that God doesn't leave our hearts hard and dead, but by his mercy and his kindness, by his spirit. What is the new covenant promise? Ezekiel 36, listen to this. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll make you clean. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh a heart that has different desires, I'll put my spirit in you and I'll cause you to walk in my ways. This is the heart of the gospel and there's nothing better than to hear it and be reminded. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying a new heart 
treasures different things. And you know if your heart is treasuring what's been given to you in the gospel by what comes out of your mouth. So if we have been given a new heart, the question is, is do new things come out of our mouth? Things like, Lord, have mercy on me. Things like, I want to worship you, Lord. Things like, I want to be gentle and kind with those in my sphere. I want a new heart that treasures the goodness of God to come out of my mouth. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth fruit. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. If you've been given a new heart by God in Christ, you have a treasure inside of you of spiritual gifts, as we just heard from Ephesians, uh, Galatians 5 earlier. But let's keep following Jesus' seemingly random words here. Look at what he says at the end. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now he's suddenly talking about judgment and not just any judgment, the day of judgment. It seems like this impossibly harsh judgment, doesn't it? Every careless word. I am so guilty. Are you? The Greek translation there has had lots of fodder. Is that a word that means empty? Maybe. So in other words, how many times have I made a promise or I said I'd repent, but I didn't really mean what I said. Therefore, it was an empty word. It was an idle word. It was careless. One of the things that happened to me over sabbatical, as I've shared with some of you more intimately, but I got some time of quiet by myself. Sounds comical, but when we were hiking with Johnny Malloy, Nate and I did the backpacking trip. Johnny made it so Nate left me back with my pack about 100 yards behind him in silence, just so Jim had no one to talk to. It was like one of Johnny's rules. Jim needs silence. And I did take a five-day backpacking trip or camping trip myself out to Colorado just to try to remember where I grew up and what's gone on in my heart since childhood. And in silence, you know what you realize? Your mouth has a lot of power and can do a lot of blessing, and it can do a lot of damage. And whenever the mouth speaks, it's coming from a heart that God has worked in and that God needs to continue to work in. This is what Jesus is addressing. And he's saying it is so important that you need to know God is just, and on judgment day, you know what he's going to do? He will turn to the evidence, and the evidence is what has come out of mouths. That's the evidence he will use that will determine whether condemnation or justification is the result of judgment day. And I, I love this because ultimately what Jesus is saying is when you speak about the kingdom, you think you're judging me. But who is really judging who? Right? Think about the crowds. The crowd saw the miracle and they judged. They, they thought they made a discerning you know, declaration. Is this the son of David? They're judging. They're trying to discern. The Pharisees, they judged and said, no, he's evil. He's wicked. He's doing the works of Satan. And that whole scene, I believe Jesus is saying, actually what's happening is in my kingdom, those who speak about me are being judged by what they say. And here's the glory of it. If God's worked in our hearts, then what words do we use when we confess our sin but to say, have mercy on me? Lord, I need you to cleanse this heart that keeps having things, evidence that I'm not pure. 
And if I use words to say to the Father, I I believe that what Jesus came to do, he came to do. I believe it's finished. I believe you can forgive me. Then Jesus says, those are the words that I will use as evidence on judgment day. For you have judged the Son to be your Savior with your words, reflecting your heart. But if, and he's warning the Pharisees, if your words have excused me as anything else, have dismissed the work of the Spirit, have denied that I'm the only mediator between God and man, have denied that I came to take the wrath of God because your sin deserves wrath, then by your words you will be condemned. Who's judging who here? Jesus flips the scales. I want to do the, the same thing I did last week because I had a few of you say it was, it was nice to have you come back and try to, try to offer four simple applications at the end of your sermon. So I want to, I want to try that again. I'll try to be brief and direct. First application. Today, use words and ask for God to give you a new heart if you've never done so before. Ask for your heart to trust what the scriptures say that you need to be made new by a source that you aren't able to conjure up on your own by God's Holy Spirit, that he would show you you're a sinner that needs a new heart and ask for it. If you have been in Christ, then here's what you need to kind of apply that, is ask for the Lord to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. Ask God to search you that you would know your heart, to try you and know your thoughts so that you'd see if there's any grievous way in you so you can use words to confess your heart. So that's the first application. Today, use words and ask for a new heart or ask for God to continually hold your heart. Second application, listen to yourself. What comes out of your mouth? What do others hear or not hear you say? Listen to yourself and consider your heart. Do you speak calm words? That comes from a calm heart that trusts in God's sovereignty, even when everything else seems to be falling apart. Do you never speak calm words, but they're often anxious and aggravated? That comes from a heart that's anxious and aggravated and probably doesn't trust in God's sovereign will. Do you speak words that self-justify a lot? That comes from a heart that needs to believe that justification is only found in the righteousness of Jesus and you can be free. Listen to yourself that you might know your heart. Or maybe I turn that backwards Consider what you don't ever hear yourself say. What doesn't come out of your mouth? For example, if you do not evangelize those in your life and tell them about Jesus, you may not have a heart that cares much about the lost. Or if you don't disciple someone else with the word and go into places to hold their heart and interpret life together in the word, you may not care that much about the body of Christ in your heart. Or if you don't use words to worship privately and public, then you may need to have a heart that's exposed by Psalm 95 that says, today don't harden your hearts, but come, which we looked at two weeks ago. Or how about this? If repentance isn't a rhythm in your life and you don't speak words that are very specific about ways you violated the law of God, you may not have a heart that thinks you need to be forgiven much. This week in a discipleship group, I was with a young man in our church, and he, he said, Jim, I have a question about Psalm 39. 
So we turn to it. I, I, I encourage you to look at it this week. It's not the point of my sermon, but David is talking and he says, Lord, I want to guard my lips. I want to guard my life. But he feels like God's kind of against him and disciplining him. So here's what he says. He says, so I decided to be mute and silent. So I picture David, he's wrestling with sin. He's just like, I'm just going to cover my mouth and not say anything because whenever I say stuff, it just is wrong. But then in verse 3 of Psalm 39, he says, but my heart got really hot inside of me. I mused a fire burn and I spoke out with my tongue because I couldn't have my heart just fume. I had to say something. And then he says to God, oh, Lord, make me to know the ends of my days. He asked for God to forgive him. He says, I don't want to live life as though it's all without awareness that I'm but a breath. He repented with words that passionately expressed his heart that was an inferno. So consider maybe what you don't say. Third, use new words. Use new words. Because if you have this treasure in your heart that's overflowing, it shouldn't sound static. Use new words. In how you talk to others about the gospel and how you parent your children and you disciple them. I was thinking about this on Friday after a run and I was listening to some music and I heard a song that reminded me of that great promise attached to the second commandment that God is going to show his steadfast love to thousands of generations. When's the last time that I used those words and spoke them to my children? Because my heart believes that for thousands of generations, God's going to be faithful forever. And I can trust him. Or a friend shared with me from Colossians 1 the other day and said, man, we're like in our 40s. We're stressed as fathers. He says, I was reading Colossians 1, and isn't it amazing? All things are from Christ. All things are through Christ. It's even greater than that. It's all for Christ. It's all going to be reconciled back to Christ. Like he can take it all back whenever he wants. And then he looked at me and he said, so why do I think I got to hold it all together? He used words to get in the game to talk to his pastor from his heart. Use new words, thirdly. And now fourthly, it's the last thing before we close. Believe this word. And here's the word that you need to believe before we take the Lord's Supper. Every sin that you have ever committed, ever, was laid on Christ ever, and you are forgiven. And you have no shame in your heart. So long as with your words, you've confessed your sin and asked for Jesus to be your Savior. See, if my words reveal my heart, then what reveals God's heart? God's word. And who was God's word in the flesh? Jesus. And what did God's word in the flesh prove about God's heart? 
that he would rescue his own children from the wrath that we deserve for our sin. So that's the fourth thing. Believe this word. If you are in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And you are righteous in God's sight. And so as we take this Lord's Supper right now, would you do so with an immense amount of freedom and thanksgiving and worship? And then when we sing, would you use words that flow out of a heart that has tapped into a treasury that is yours? Let me pray. Father, would the treasury that's ours in Christ be believed anew this morning? And would the words that come from our lips for the remainder of this service be flowing out of that? When we find ourselves in the moments, hours, days ahead, having words come out of our mouth that are antithetical to your law, that are inconsistent with our Savior and his kingdom, that are hurtful of others, that are just false, that are untrue, that should never have been spoken, would you give us then awareness of how our hearts have been made new and we can cry out and ask for forgiveness? And would we use words to do that? And would you mature your people because we heard the words of your son today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.